Woof, we got a lot of confidence today. Okay, well, I think we're going to have a very small Sunday school class, but Ray's going to come up and he's going to pray, and then you guys can head on upstairs. awesome God and uh, your Lord and creator of everything, heaven and earth. And thank you for your word, for its truth, that it gives life and that it's infallible. And as they go upstairs, let them be able to explore your word and apply that into their hearts so one day they'll be able to praise and glorify you and give thanksgiving. In your name we pray this. Amen. Well, I'm wondering if we have less people because they found out the youth pastor was preaching this morning, and they took the opportunity to head for the hills. But uh, I'm so glad you're here, and uh, strap yourselves in. You're trapped. I already know. I know your faces. You can't sneak out the back, okay? So we're going to get going. Uh, Once again, if you don't know me, my name is Blair. I'm the next-gen pastor here at Nelson County Church, and that means that I uh, run our middle school, youth, and young adults program, and uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Unfortunately... I only have four weeks left of it, but I'm still going to make the most of it, and I'm excited for one, one last chance to get up and, and practice my preaching for you guys. And so I dressed up nice and fancy today so that if it goes horribly wrong, at least I look good doing it. Well, I didn't think I looked dressed that well, but uh, okay. So we're going to continue on with our insurrection series, whether Jeff is here or not. We're going to go ahead and... Uh, And so our passage today, you can turn to it. We're going to do a little bit before that, but if you want to turn to it, it's Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. Now, I was thinking about the first time I preached here, and uh, I had no idea how to introduce my sermon. And uh, I was looking for that hook, right, something to grab people's attention. And so I took the opportunity, because I was was getting kind of desperate, to announce that my wife was pregnant. She was actually pregnant. I didn't make it up. She was pregnant. And... uh, and so that was, uh, that was my hook. And it's so nice that we could come full circle here for my last sermon. My wife's not pregnant. <laughs> Whew. No, one's enough. One's enough for now. Um, it's actually Eli's birthday tomorrow. We're really excited about it. But uh, he, yeah, no, we're, we're okay. We can wait longer than nine months for another one. So, so I can't use that as my hook. But now I got your attention anyways, right? So... But actually, I do have this little story I'm going to share with you guys. I'm going to read it out. And it's by an unknown author, so I can't actually give credit to to who the author is. Somebody out there wrote this, and they did a wonderful job. And I'm going to uh, share that with you uh, before we get into our passage. Once upon a time, in the heart of an ancient kingdom, there was a beautiful garden. And there, in the cool of the day, the master of the garden would walk. Of all the plants of the garden, the most beautiful and most beloved was gracious and noble bamboo. Year after year, bamboo grew yet more noble and gracious, conscious of his master's love and watchful delight, but modest and gentle withal. And often when the wind came to revel in the garden, bamboo would dance and play, tossing and swaying, and leaping and bowing in joyous abandon, leading the great dance of the garden, which most delighted the master's heart. Now, once upon a day, the master himself drew near to contemplate his bamboo with eyes of curious expectancy. And bamboo, in a passion of adoration, bowed his great head to the ground in loving greeting. The master spoke, Bamboo, bamboo, I would use you. Bamboo flung his head into the sky in utter delight. 
The day of days had come, the day for which he had been made, the day to which he had been growing hour by hour, the day in which he would find his completion and his destiny. His voice came low, Master, I'm ready, use me as you wish. Bamboo, the master's voice was grave, I would have to cut you down. A trembling of great horror shook Bamboo, cut me down, me, whom you, master, has made the most beautiful in all thy garden. Cut me down? Not that, not that. Use me for the joy, use me for the glory, O oh master, but do not cut me down. Beloved Bamboo, the master's voice graver still, if I do not cut you down, I cannot use you. The garden grew still. Wind held his breath. Bamboo slowly bent his proud and glorious head. There was a whisper. Master, if you cannot use me for other than to cut me down, then do your will and cut. Bamboo, beloved bamboo, I would cut your leaves and branches from you also. Master, spare me. Cut me down and lay my beauty in the dust. But would you also have to take me from my leaves and branches too? Bamboo, if I do not cut them away, I cannot use you. The sun hid his face. A listening butterfly glided fearfully away, and Bamboo shivered in terrible expectancy, whispering low, Master, cut away. Bamboo, Bamboo, I would yet split you in two and cut out your heart, for if I cut not so, I cannot use you. Then Bamboo bowed to the ground, Master, Master, then cut and split. So did the master of the garden took Bamboo and cut him down, and hacked off his branches and stripped off his leaves, and split him in two, and cut out his heart. And lifting him gently, the master carried bamboo to where there was a spring of fresh, sparkling water in the midst of his dry fields. Then putting one end of the broken bamboo in the spring, and the other end into the water channel in the field, the master gently laid down his beloved bamboo, and the spring sang welcome, and the clear, sparkling waters raced joyously down the channel of bamboo's torn body into the waiting fields. Then the rice was planted, and the days went by, and the shoots grew, and the harvest came. And in that day, once so glorious in his stately beauty, was yet more glorious in his brokenness and humility. For in his beauty he was life abundant, but in his brokenness he became a channel of abundant life to his master's world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to, to worship you and to, to hear your word, God. And I just pray as we explore this passage today, that you would speak to us, God, that you would speak your truth that you want to lay on our hearts this morning. I pray that you would uh, be with me and help me to speak clearly and articulate what it is you want to share, God. Amen. So once again, our passage today is Mark nine forty-two to 50, and so we're going to be continuing on. So here we go. Mark nine forty-two to 50. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? 
have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with each other. So at first glance, when we read this passage, it seems a little bit all over the place. Like, it's kind of broken into three sections here. And when you're first reading it, it's it's a little bit confusing to kind of see where Jesus is going with this. It obviously has a very dark tone, this passage. It's a very serious talk that's happening here. And so what we're going to do today is I'd like to break this down section by section to kind of flesh it out a little bit, kind of explain the imagery that Jesus is using here for his disciples and why it was important, and then also connect kind of a central theme to it and what the message that Jesus is trying to share. So let's start with verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I don't know why Jeff gave me this passage, you know. The youth pastor gets the kind of dark and uh, scary passage. I don't know what's going on here. But, okay, so. So earlier in this chapter, uh, perhaps in one of the previous sermons, we would have we learned that uh, in the context of what's happening here, Jesus had taken a little child and had kind of talked, his, talked to his disciples about this child. And so... He would have said that uh, if anyone who welcomes these little children in my name welcomes me. And so we can kind of, we might think initially when he's saying if anyone causes one of these little ones, maybe he's continuing on the conversation about the little children. But I think it goes a little bit beyond that. Yes, it could very well include the children. But because he uses a different phrase here, he's not, he doesn't say this child. He says these little ones. And so what he's saying there is that it's not just about the children, but it's those who are young in faith. Because the disciples were the ones who were following Jesus for a long time, and they were learning, they were right in the action, right? And they were just getting poured into continuously. But there were lots of others who were following Jesus who didn't necessarily have that, you know? Where they were just kind of, they were further behind in kind of tracking with Jesus. They were catching up, they were learning, they were new to their faith. And so Jesus here, it's not, it's not just talking about children causing them to stumble, but causing anyone who's young in their faith, anyone who's new, fellow believers. If you cause them to stumble, it's better for, for this to happen to them. And I want to explore a little bit the image that Jesus is using here. A large millstone be hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now that in of itself is kind of a scary thought, right? It's not a happy thought. And initially when I first read this, I thought, well, Jesus is just kind of going to the extreme here, using kind of an extreme example to really get his point across. He is, but What's interesting, though, is that if we dig a little bit into kind of the Jewish culture and the Jewish religious practices, we would actually understand that this right here is an absolutely terrifying image for his disciples when Jesus said this to them. It, it brought an entirely different image to their mind, a whole different level of the seriousness of what's being said here. And so here is a picture of the millstone that Jesus would be referring to. Now, for scale... That is a fence beside it. So it's not like this little round tab. Like there, there was ones that, uh, that women would use to kind of grind a little bit of grain at a time. But this was one that could only be maneuvered through a system that was pulled by a donkey. So this millstone was, would be bigger than, or heavier than the person it would be attached to, right? So there's no hope for you if you have this thing attached to you and you're thrown into the sea. The other thing that is important to uh, remember is that... The sea of itself is a terrifying thing for the Israelites. Now, the method of uh, 
tying a millstone around someone's neck and throwing them into the sea was, was actually real. It wasn't just this exaggerated thing because it was something that the Romans actually used for executions in some, some methods. And there are actually, uh, not in the Bible, but other historical records that show some of the uh, Israelite rebels against the Roman Empire actually, in their anger, would actually do that to some Roman officials. So this was something, this was a practice that actually happened. Okay, it wasn't just this complete exaggeration that Jesus was just pulling out of nowhere. This, is, this was real to them. This is something that, that happens. And the sea, like I said, the, the Israelites were a desert folk. And so the sea was a terrifying thing to them. And so it was the big unknown. You would never hear about an Israelite during that time going out and kind of exploring the seas and, and going out and trading, something like that. They didn't do that. The ocean was unknown and it was uh, seen as a very dark and scary place. And so, like, the level of the intensity of this image is being raised. First of all, it's something that's real. Second of all, it's the place that it's happening. This isn't a lake or a stream. This is something it's the, you're being cast out into the big unknown. And then the final thing, to take it even further, is that it was very important in Jewish religious practice that if you died, your remains needed to be recovered so you could be buried. But, you know... If that's happening to you, your remains are not going to be found. Right? You're being cast out into the big unknown. There's no hope for that. And so this is the best image that Jesus could use to demonstrate total annihilation. And so when Jesus is saying this in this passage, better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea, he's saying it's better for you to be like completely and totally annihilated than to cause a young, either like a little child or someone young in their faith to stumble. This isn't a very happy sermon so far, is it? I'm sorry about that. It'll get better. No? All right. Okay, so, uh, so right away, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, and things go from level 1 to level 100 in seriousness. And so he grabs their attention very quickly and very effectively. Next. This is uh, 43 to 48. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the, fires, the, and the fire is not quenched. This passage, this right there, it used to terrify me as a youth. Because I took it, like, very seriously, right? Like, very literally. I remember um, when I was in Bible camp as a kid, the camp counselor probably should not have done so, but he did a little talk on that passage when I was a kid in, in the camp and, and talked about, you know, cutting off hands and stuff like that. If it's sin, and I was like, that, that is terrifying. I cannot imagine cutting off my own hand if it caused me to sin. Like, I take sin seriously, but do we take sin that seriously? Where we actually... When, when push comes to shove, willing to cut that off for the sake of uh, our own salvation, right, to prevent us from sinning. So Jesus is using that, again, this imagery, and he's using the imagery of corporal punishment versus capital punishment. And so the word hell that's being used in this passage, the word is Gehenna, and Gehenna is transliterated from two different Hebrew words, one of them meaning the Valley of Hinnon, and the Valley of Hinnon was a place that was south of Jerusalem, and it was 
it was back in the age of kings, so it wasn't like happening right then, but back in the age of kings, and it was a place where children would be taken, they would be sacrificed to the pagan god Molech before that practice was stopped by one of the kings. The other word that Gehenna is kind of transliterated from is, and some people may have uh, heard of this one, it's a site that uh, was Jerusalem's refuse site, kind of the garbage dump. And so at this garbage dump, there would be a fire that would never end because they were constantly bringing things to feed it. So this is, there's this image that Jesus is using, and the garbage that was brought there was infested with worms. And so the image that Jesus is using here is to kind of, he's doing his, he, he's, he's painting a picture of hell for the disciples and a place that, you know, that, so then they could wrap their minds about just how serious this is and how terrible it is. Now there's a quote in, uh, at the end there of the passage that Jesus uses, and that comes from Isaiah 66, 24. And so that says, And they will go out and look at the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So there's an imagery that Jesus is using of worms and fire. And so the worms would signify an internal punishment, and the fires would be an external punishment. And that punishment, because uh, he's using the image of the refuse dump is something that never ends, right? It's continuous. It's constant. And so, again, he's using very violent and disturbing language. Jesus is using that to, to set the tone, to, like, help the disciples wrap their heads around. Because if we understand the context of this chapter, the dis- disciples are kind of uh, not really taking it seriously, Right? Earlier in the chapter, they were arguing about, and they do this a couple times, arguing about who was the best among them, or they were kind of debating uh, about other people who were casting out demons in Jesus' names, Jesus name. And, uh, and so Jesus sits them down for this talk. And, uh, and he uses this imagery to kind of help them grasp the seriousness of what's happening here. Now, the last passage... The last section, sorry, is verses 49 and 50. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Salt was a very valuable commodity in Israel and in the surrounding countries. And uh, it was actually necessary for life. Does anybody here know why? Why was salt a necessity of life? It preserves food. Excellent. And so salt, yeah, would be used to salt meat to prevent it from decaying, to preserve it, right? And so then you could store food for um, whatever time period, right? And you wouldn't uh, need to eat what was just killed that day. So again, salt, yeah, like I said, very important because it preserves meat. And so this right here, and I'm going to come to it a little bit later, this image here is the the Dead Sea. And so the Dead Sea was very salty. In fact, if you go there and you just go out on the water, you'd float like pretty much right at the surface because of the salt levels there. And there would be salt deposits kind of around it. And there was an area southwest of the Dead Sea that there was a bunch of saline deposits where they would be harvested and then distributed. So everyone will be salted with fire. See, this is one passage that there's a little bit confusing. At first, it seems like it's a bit of a transition because he's talking about hell, and then he's talking about salt, and so maybe he's just using this to kind of bridge there. There's a couple of different interpretations of this passage right here. One of them is actually uh, 
some people would say that it supports the idea of purgatory, the idea of being salted with fire to be preserved with fire. Another interpretation of it is talking about how people would be preserved for eternity through fire and through the fire that he was just talking about, the external punishment. And so uh, perhaps Jesus here is talking about how those who are cast into hell would be preserved for eternity through that fire. And then another interpretation of it is actually not speaking about those who, who are not following Jesus who would, be, who would be cast into hell, but rather um, the disciples themselves and for us. Some would interpret it as referring to an Old Testament practice where they would season sacrifices with salt. And so the idea behind that is that, is that the disciples and us are living sacrifices, as it says in Romans 12.1, that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And so because of that, we will be seasoned with purifying fiery trials. So we will be salted with fire. And so what that would mean is that the trials that we would face in this life, and we know that the disciples faced a lot of trials in their life. Like, they didn't know what was going to happen next, but we have that kind of big-picture view where we see kind of the way they were persecuted, and they were killed in the end. And they, you know, faced those trials. And, and so these trials would purge out what is contrary to God's will, and it would preserve what is consistent with God's will. And so you can kind of even combine a couple of those views where Jesus, because Jesus is saying everyone. So maybe he's talking about those who are preserved uh, through, you know, the torment of fire, but also those of us who are following him and the disciples will be preserved or salted through the fiery trials that we face in this life. And Jesus never shies away from telling his disciples and telling us that in this life, when we are following him, we will face trials. There's a reason why it's called the narrow road and not the wide road. Right? It's not easy to be a follower of Jesus. It's easier to be uh, living a sinful, self-centered life. It's easy to do that. It's not easy to follow him. We will face things. And through that, facing those trials and things like that, we'll be salted with fire. So, kind of going back to the saline deposits. Now, what they would do is they would harvest the salt, they would put it on a wagon, and then they would go and it would be distributed to the markets where then it would be sold and then people could use it. The issue with this particular area is that the salt was susceptible to being deteriorated, to losing its saltiness. And so they didn't have the technology then to kind of re-salt salt, right? If it loses its saltiness, you can't, can't fix it then. So, and it would, still, it would still look like salt. You'd have to taste it in order to know. And so the salt could lose its saltiness, and then it would become useless. And then Jesus says, but how can it be resalted?" Now, it does not take long. Like, if you were to turn on the news tomorrow morning, like worldwide news and things like that, or read about it, it wouldn't take long for you to figure out that our world is broken, that our world is fallen. Like, sin is just rampant in this world, and our world is decaying spiritually, and it's dying, and even in some ways physically it's dying as well. And so Jesus is using... So we're going to try to tie this all together. So Jesus is using these violent, disturbing images, terrifying images for the disciples and for us, for a purpose. And that purpose is that he's trying to bring them to a place where they can realize the big picture and realize just how serious this all is. Because we all know a few chapters later what's going to happen to Jesus. The disciples didn't know that. In fact, recently... Before this passage, Jesus had actually shared how he was going to go and what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. But the disciples still didn't get it. 
right? And so he's sitting them down for a talk. He's sitting them down for a reality check because they were so worried about what was, uh, who was the greatest among them. They were worried about, you know, whether they were better than these younger believers or what these younger believers should or shouldn't do and things like that. And, and they were squabbling amongst themselves. And Jesus needed to sit them down and just say, hey, there is something so much bigger happening here. There's something so much bigger that you are a part of, and you need to realize just how serious this is. And that's why he uses those images. And so we are called to be salt. There's a lot of, uh, there's different references that Jesus uses calling us to be the salt of the world. And so I really like this image of the salt being used to preserve meat, like we just shared here, being used to preserve. We have the hope of the gospel in us. The disciples had the hope of the gospel in them. And that hope and that gospel and that light is the salt of the world. That is what's going to preserve the world against the decay and against the rot of sin that's happening in this broken world. And so we carry that inside of us. Yet when we get so sidetracked with what's going on, like the disciples were getting sidetracked, we run the risk of losing our saltiness. We run the risk of compromising our witness to the world. Now, Jesus talks about cutting off hands, cutting off feet, cutting out eyes, you know, if it causes you to sin. And I think in all of our lives, and myself included, when I talk about this, all these examples that I give, they're coming from my own life. So whether it's self-centeredness, pride, greed, uh, envy, or pretty much any other sin that's going on in your life, there's something that's stuck inside of you that you haven't dealt with, that it's there. It's like a gangrious limb. It's like a gangrious limb that's causing you damage, and it's compromising us being the salt of the world. It's compromising us bringing that hope of the gospel out there. It's compromising our witness. So Jesus is calling us to be like a surgeon and cut that off. But that's not always easy. You know, I use the image of, of gangrious limb. Of course, we want to cut that off. But it can be really hard to cut out sin, depending on the sin, right? If it's a sin that's obviously causing destruction in your life in a very obvious way, of course, it's, it's easy to, to recognize that and deal with it. But when it's a sin of pride or if it's a sin of being at conflict with each other, with other believers, calling, causing other believers to stumble and letting go of, of kind of us being, acting like the bamboo, you know, where we are so glorious and prideful but we don't realize that what we need to actually do is to be humble, is to be cut, and to be broken, right? Before, and to put God before ourselves. And so... Our challenge this morning is what does that look like to cut off the hand, the foot, the eye in your life? Is there something going on in your life that is preventing you from being uh, a witness for Christ, for bringing that salt out into this dying world? Because there are people outside of these walls walking around Nelson right now who need what's under a lot of our chairs right now, God's word and the gospel. They need that. But if we're holding on to that hand, that foot, that eye, if we're holding on to that sin and not willing to make that sacrifice to cut out, to, to humble ourselves, then can we really fully bring the salt? Can we fully salt the world? Can we fully bring the gospel to those who desperately need it? And so my hope this morning is that we would recognize that what that is and then cut it out of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that we are able to look into your word and just see the big picture of what's going on here and to see what perhaps the disciples couldn't, God. And Lord, I just pray that um, 
that we would not allow the sin in our life to, to stand in the way, to cause us to, uh, to not be able to bring that gospel, Lord, to share, to witness, to fulfill the great commandment. Lord, I just pray that, uh, that if there is something in our lives that needs to be cut out, that needs to be dealt with so that we can be that salt, I just pray that that would be revealed to us, that we would see it for what it is, God, and that we would take action, that we wouldn't just delay, that we wouldn't just hope it'll go away, God, that we would humble ourselves and lift ourselves up to you as living sacrifices, God.